Hello, and welcome to Studio Dialogues. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with a very special guest. His name is Lauren McCracken, and he's based in the USA. Lauren is very well known for his photorealistic still lives and florals, amongst other subjects. After a successful career in architecture spanning 40 years, Lauren is now a photographer and a full-time watercolorist. He is an award-winning artist whose work has been exhibited in many prestigious watercolor societies and exhibitions across the world. In this wonderful conversation, you will get to know him, his thought processes, as he shares many insights that you just don't want to miss. Hi, Lauren. Hello there. How are you today? I'm good. It's really good to see you. We finally made it. Finally, we have connected. Thank you for your patience. No, no worries at all. Um, so, you know, I'm really happy to have you today because um, your work is really, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. It's lovely. And um, I know I love the range of, um, uh, you know, the objects that you can take into your paintings and create a feel and a mood. So um, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. So am I. Thank you. Great. So I want to start with uh, talking a bit about you, um, you know, about your background and um, how you like your career. Well, uh, we, we, I could talk for days because I've had a, I had a fabulous career as an architect uh, for 50 years. Uh, I, ran, uh, I, I actually didn't draw a lot because I, I got in the management side of, of the business mm -hmm. very early and uh, particularly in the marketing side. And so I was the head of marketing for some very large architectural practices, thousands of people. And we, I opened the London office uh, for an architectural practice, and I opened the Japan, the Tokyo office for oh, another. Wow. Uh, I, I, and I did those from an airplane. Uh, I didn't live in either of those places, but I got to travel a lot as an architect and uh, had offices all over the United States. So it was a fascinating uh, experience, and I, I would do it all again uh, if I had an opportunity. But... While I was going to college, uh, and I went to some really fabulous schools in the United States, I started, started at Auburn University, which is a very large uh, land-grant college in Alabama, 30,000 students, but it had a strong military uh, connection. And then I got a scholarship to go to Rice University in, uh, in Houston, Texas, which is a very, very small, very elite private college, uh, then went into the military, and then came back out of the military and went to graduate school. And I went to Princeton University for two oh. years. And I, I have two more degrees from Princeton. So I have four oh. <laughs> university degrees. So, uh, but uh, while, I, while I was at Rice, I was supposed to take a watercolor lesson. And the other option that was available to us was to take a printing class, uh, etching, uh, lithography, woodblock print. And uh, I had drawn a lot as a child. And uh, so I opted to take the print class and had a fabulous time. I learned a lot. And, and in fact, I learned a lot that actually helped me in watercolor later. And I'll come back to that. Uh, but later in life, I, I started thinking about the fact that I had never learned to watercolor. And all of my architect friends, they watercolored. And so when I was living in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, uh, 
there, I, I was living in a town called Alexandria, Virginia. And in Alexandria, uh, on the Potomac River there, there is an old torpedo factory. They made torpedoes in the First and Second World War. But now it's art studios and art galleries, which is a much better use of the building, of course. <laughs> and, uh, so I used to go down there quite often because there were a lot of really good artists. And I saw a lot of, uh, of really good watercolors. And I kept asking, uh, where did you learn? Who taught you? You know, how, how do you learn to watercolor? And I, I got the same answer that there was a school attached to the torpedo factory called the, uh, called the Institute. And uh, one lady's name stood out, a lady by the name of Gwen Bragg. And so I signed up to take her course, but she was so popular, it took 18 months Whoa. for there to be a slot in her class. Uh, and so I was able to take two six weeks classes on Sunday evenings for two hours. So you've got a total of 24 hours of instruction that I had, but that launched me as a watercolorist. I end up at the end of that period moving to Chicago. And I, while I still stay in touch with uh, Gwen Bragg, I was no longer able to take classes from her but she was really good at teaching the fundamentals of watercolor. What is a, what is a continuous wash? What is a, a, a broken wash? You know, all of these things. One of the things we forget is that uh, watercolor is a very technical process-driven medium. And that's why so many people have a problem with watercolor because they go to the store, they see watercolors can be bought very inexpensively, very bad brushes, bad paint, bad paper, but it's available. And so for a few dollars, you can become a watercolorist. But if, if you don't know anything about the processes of, of how to load a brush, how, how to clean your brush, all those fundamental things, it becomes very, very frustrating and Absolutely. very, very difficult. And so everybody says, oh, watercolor is just so difficult, I can't do it. And it is difficult if you don't find somebody that uh, provides you the basic instruction. And, and Ms. Bragg was very good about that basic instruction. And uh, so I moved to Chicago and just kept painting on nights and weekends. And I, I took some classes at the Art Institute in, in Chicago, which is a famous art school uh, with a wonderful realist uh, painter uh, that taught there on weekends. It, it wasn't a, a credit course. It was just a, an adult education course, but very good painter. I learned a lot. And uh, so I became really uh, fascinated with watercolor. Uh, I was good at it. I knew I was good at it the minute I picked up a, I didn't have to think twice about how to move my hand, how to create a stroke. When, when somebody showed me how to do something, I could just do it. It's like it was always in my head and just need to be brought out. And so that's what Gwen Bragg did for me. She brought out all these talents that I had buried in my head and didn't even know they were there. Uh, so I've gone on 
uh, to paint for several years and while I was an architect and it sort of transitioned out of being an architect over a period of seven or eight years actually. And so now I paint uh, full-time, uh, but I also come to watercolor a little differently than most of my friends that uh, have just have come from the art side. Uh, the people say, well, you're an architect. That means that makes uh, sense for all your realism. Well, it really doesn't because uh, as I said, I was in the management side of, right. uh, of, of architecture and the marketing side. And so I didn't draw in for 30 something years, almost 40 years. But as an architect, you think about things a little differently than most people. For instance, I got to thinking about why is a, a watercolor round shaped like it is? Mm -hmm. Who invented it? Where did it come from? It didn't just happen one day, you know? So I started do, reading and I had a tough time finding that uh, in the mid uh, 1850s, there was a competition in England uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, Constable and Turner and a, a lot of famous watercolorists invited uh, more than a dozen brush makers from all over England and Scotland and Ireland to uh, come up with a better watercolor brush because the hog bristle brushes that they used for, for watercolor, I mean, for oil, oh, yes. were good for, for watercolor, yeah. but not very useful for, uh, for watercolor. And mm -hmm. they wanted uh, to advance watercolor. <clears throat> you know, Turner, who is a very, very famous English uh, artist, uh, painted 10,000 oil paintings, but he painted 30,000 watercolor paintings. Wow, yes. He I really often, preferred Often huh? these guys would make studies with watercolor for their- uh, but, Yes, paintings. but- but Turner did finished paintings. Wow, okay. Yeah, for, for particularly for homes and things like that. Uh, sure, a lot of people did it for study, but there were a constable and a lot of these people did it for finished paintings also. Okay. So, uh, so in that period, they had this competition. They invited all these brush makers and uh, one of the brush makers was able to get his hands on some Kalinsky uh, weasel uh, hair from Russia. And he made this beautiful round and it had a big fat belly. It had came to a beautiful point because the weasel hair is tapered. It's the one of the few hairs uh, that is tapered and it bends. So it creates this lovely uh, belly that fills up with water or fills up with paint. And when you put it in a round, yeah. it maintains that shape. Wow. So that's how a round came about. So I've been, so I went and asked the, the people in Escoda, uh, show me how you make a round brush. Why is it so important? <laughs> and so they showed me. And so then I went and talked to John Cogley at the Daniel Smith Paint Company. And I said, John, what makes watercolor paint so special? And he took me back in his laboratory and showed me how they made their paint. And so 
uh, I've been taking my watercolor friends to different manufacturers so we can find out how is the how do they make it and what does the manufacturer recommend how to use that product mm -hmm. and 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 I found that most of them are using it wrong because nobody has ever told us the right way to do it <laughs> so uh, I, as an architect, you would do that. You wouldn't specify a particular kind of roof unless you had talked to that manufacturer and, and asked them about, is that roof uh, manufacturing suitable for this type of building? And he would tell you either yes or no. And if he said yes, he would show you how to use it. But we don't think like that in, as an artist. You know, we just think about creating the final product. And, and so I've spent a lot of time in my career studying the product, studying paper, for instance. Uh, sure, you can paint on both sides of the paper, but the manufacturer does recommend that you paint on the side of the paper that you can read the watermark. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that is the recommended side. Yeah. Uh, but most, a lot of people don't even know there's a watermark on their paper. Okay. And, and so they just pick it up and start painting on it. So uh, anyway, there, so there's a lot, a lot so to learn. It's really fascinating because, uh, you know, when we start with watercolor, we, we don't do enough research. And, exactly. uh, you know, um, a lot of people don't actually, that's very true. And um, there's also the other obsession with materials, with art materials. Some, some of us are holders. <laughs> so it, it can go oh, yeah. the other oh, way. Yeah. Sure. It can yeah. go every the other color way. Is had, every watercolorist has at least 200 brushes, right? Oh, <laughs> you See, know, you, only may, you may only use four of them, but you have them in case you need them. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're holders. I mean, uh, even the pigments, I mean, they're just so irresistible. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Buying more absolutely. and more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but it's really fascinating to know how uh, you know your your thought process was because of your career in architecture or otherwise, and uh, you thought logically about this also. Because often we think that uh, art and logic are not uh, the same thing, but there is a logic to even art because you have to understand the process, you have to understand composition, and many other That's things right. to really get before you start painting. So, yes. which which, which uh, reminds me, I would love to know you know about. Uh, your process in, in a broad uh, uh, in a broad way because I know you do very detailed paintings but um, uh, you know and first we can talk about your your main subject which is realism uh, I'd love to know a little more about realism because I I mean well I, I, really I, I, I come to realism actually not through my architecture but I come to realism through my photography I've always uh, okay. uh, mm -hmm. taken photographs and in fact I taught uh, photography at Princeton to the uh, architecture students uh, there as a as a graduate assistant. Uh, you had to take my my class in order to have access to these huge uh, dark rooms that the ar ar architecture department controlled. Uh, so, in my taking of photography, got very very interested in details and in textures and things like that. And so when I came into painting, it was pretty natural that I would paint things that have a lot of detail in them and that have different textures in them. I spent a lot of time uh, 
learning how to paint wood textures, for instance. And on the other hand, I, I spent a lot of time teaching myself how to paint cloud textures because they are very elusive, you know. Uh, and most most watercolorists just take some alizarin and and drop it into wet uh, paint and hope the blossoms make uh, clouds. But constables taught us how to paint clouds. So you go, and constable used watercolor to teach himself how to paint clouds. And you can still uh, see these uh, these paintings in, in England at, at the at museum. So uh, that's how I got into. Uh, realism. And then uh, I, because I have so much university training, I have a, I took a lot of art history uh, classes, uh, you know, um, oh, probably four years worth uh, of art history and architecture history and all that. So uh, you learn a lot uh, about composition and uh, all the things that uh, impact the art side of your, your technical creativity from studying great artists. I mean, you think about the amount of time that Picasso, for instance, spent in the Louvre copying other artists' yeah. paintings. And, and he, he didn't just copy them and, and, and say, oh, here's my uh, copy of Poussin. He, he, once he copied them, he just took what was important from that he learned from that and put it in his brain and went on to the next idea. And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to assimilate all of these things. So when I am painting, I don't necessarily think about composition. I don't think about uh, balance or proportions or movement or focus or the uh, uh, Fibonacci spiral and all those things because they're always in the back of my brain. Uh, and, and this is also something that photographers learn is you, you have to take that photograph in an instant. Yeah. You don't have time to. Yeah. Work oh the golden triangle and the Fibonacci spiral and all that. You've, it's either in your soul and your brain, or it's not. And if it's not, that means you haven't studied art enough. Yeah. You haven't looked at enough art. Yeah. Uh, and the best education anybody can have is to just spend time, either if you're in the right location doing it at museums that show great art. Or it's a, it's a poor secondary, but just get a lot of books on great art and study the, study the illustrations, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I pride myself on the fact that my uh, paintings are strong compositions. They grab you. They bring yeah. you into the painting. They lead you around the painting. They come to a focus. And then when they come to a focus, they pick you up and lead you around the painting again. You know, it's not good art is not a static quality. It just doesn't bring you into the middle of it and have you sit there. It, it makes you work. And, and mm -hmm. while you're moving around that painting, it, hopefully the painting tells you a story. 
And it may be a very, very simple story. It may just be, these are really handsome objects that I put together in an artistic way. And because there's a, a magnolia in it, you know, it was, I did it in the spring. And it may not be any more complex than that. You know, it, it could be about conflict. It could be about Napoleon uh, losing the Battle of 1812. But that's not, that doesn't have to be that heroic or, or grand. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you could paint a simple walnut and it could be a fabulous piece of art. And, and, uh, and, I, and I think of Durer, who, who's one of my heroes. Uh, it, you know, one of his, probably his most famous painting is the little watercolor of the rabbit. You know, everybody yeah. knows it. If you don't know, if you don't know Durer's rabbit, then you are seriously lacking in your art education. <laughs> it's a little difficult not to know it, but. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, that simple rabbit tells a very complex story. It's about light. It's about texture. It's about uh, uh, the fact that he, he saw value in that small uh, rabbit. And, was, and it was worth his time to spend that much time recording it so that we today know all the details about that rabbit that we need to know. And, and he did that about a lot of things. And so, and down through history, of course, in watercolor, realism has been the central thing that, you know, there, uh, let's face it, there are people that paint abstract paintings in watercolor. And I champion that. I think more people should do that because the medium is wide open for it. But the history of, of watercolor is realism. And most people still paint in some form of realism. Now, realism uh, is a broad gamut. Realism isn't just hyper-realism like way over here. And I'm not even a hyper-realist. Yeah. I'm just... Uh, I have a high degree of realism, but realism can be over here. The house can just look like a house, but the, but the house can also have this many windows and some of them can be cracked and some of them have texture on it. The more you move into yeah. that extreme realism, uh, and that's a result of what you, the artist, see when you look yeah. at your subject. Yeah. You have to be able to see the detail, the greater detail, and the greater detail. And most people, quite frankly, don't take the time to do that. You know, they want to see something, they want to draw it, and they want to paint it. And But that's why uh, my I, I take a lot of photographs before I do my still life. Uh, and I may spend four to six hours drawing uh, that wow. uh, still life. And most people just want to spend five minutes drawing, yeah. you know, and I, I, I spend uh, uh, four hours tracing the image when I project it. And then I may spend another three hours adding details when I get it to my drawing board. Yeah, because, uh, uh, you know, looking at your work, I've been very fascinated about the level of, you know, degree of uh, details in it. And in fact, that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you how you achieve that state of detail, you know, so correctly. So uh, I guess that answers my question. 
Well, I think that one of the other answers to your question is you think about this as that for one day, that's your painting. That's not the painting for that day. You decide one day that that little piece of silver mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. what you're going to paint that day. And you may not get all of it painted in one day. And so you may paint the lid and the top one day and the handle one day, and then the next day, paint the belly of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and people, most people don't think of watercolor like that. Yes. You know, you have to concentrate on one thing. And, and, if, and again, you have to see that detail. And if you can't see that, that detail, you can't draw it. But once you see it and you draw it, then you can paint it. Uh, I, I, I often uh, point out that uh, a lot of people can't see the forest for the trees, right? That's a very famous old saying. Uh, but I'm the guy that sees the trees in the forest. I see the limbs on the trees. I see the leaves on the limbs on the trees. I see the veins in the leaves on the, <laughs> on the leaves on the limbs of the tree. And, uh, but, but that takes time, it takes yeah. energy and you have to want to do it. And, and if that doesn't interest you, that's fine. Doesn't yeah. bother me at all. Doesn't mean you aren't a great artist. It just means everybody has their personal style that they bring to mm -hmm. uh, the medium of, uh, of watercolor. And one of the great things about watercolor is that it responds to all of those styles. And yeah. you can do fabulous things with it. Yes. You know? Absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's amazing. You know, all, all watercolor doesn't have to be light and and yeah. and and streaky and all that but if you're really good at it a light streaky painting can be fabulous yes unfortunately a lot of them aren't because they haven't practiced enough they haven't looked enough they haven't seen enough great art so uh there, there's a lot to uh lot to learn and and let me suggest that uh there are uh, just a, a few artists out there that that uh, uh, our audience today uh, might think about that they might have have spent time with and I, and one of them of course is Albrecht Durer who was uh, living in uh, in uh, Nuremberg Germany in uh, at the height of the uh, Renaissance in Italy you know it the Renaissance hadn't reached Northern Europe yet. So he was the first Renaissance artist of Northern uh, Europe. And uh, his detail as a printer, he did etchings and woodblock prints and that sort of thing, as well as oil paintings and did a lot of watercolor. He, he was one of the first true watercolorists. And uh, so look at Albrecht Durer and look at his detail. And then look at the Dutch painters of the 16th and 17th century. Uh, those are my heroes. When I, when I want to be in, in, in inspired, I either go to a museum that has Dutch uh, still life painters, or I pull out my mini books. I have a big library of Dutch still life paintings. Uh, and uh, look particularly at a man named Willem Kauf. It's W-I-L-L-E-M-K-A-L-L. -L -L. 
Willem Kalf. We would say William Calf, but uh, <laughs> yeah. in in the Dutch, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, look look at his paintings, and then think about go see some of my paintings, uh, and uh, you'll see that there. Uh, I, I have a very good teacher in Mr. Koff, and, and that's how I came to the black backgrounds, because he painted these really dramatic still lifes with these really, really dark, dark backgrounds, and so uh, I decided that I would try to do that, to add that level of drama to my paintings. Uh, I, I I have written uh, a little piece on the history of realism, and we're going to post it on the Fabriano Forum. So uh, that should be up uh, in another month or so. It uh, it's too much difficult. It it's too much uh, detail to go into in the time we have today. But I encourage people to look at it because. Realism has been around since the Greek and Roman times, and it's still with us today. And so let me suggest one of the great modern uh, realist painters who was a watercolorist, as well as he painted in oils and acrylics. But his early work, and his name is Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, Ralph Going, G-O-I-N-G-S. Goings has an S on the end of it, but Ralph Goings is, uh, I was, I was going to do, uh, you know, you go into a small cafe and then there's sugar and salt and pepper and mayonnaise and mustard on the table, a little, uh, cafe still life. And I was going to paint some of those. And then I was introduced to Ralph Goings paintings. And I said, no, he did it so well. There's no reason for me to do yes. it. If, if I can't advance art, uh, there's no reason for me to spend time over there. And Ralph Goings uh, ha has already done it very, very well. There, there's a, a famous watercolorist. She, she's passed away uh, several years ago, but her name is Carolyn Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, and uh, an American. And she probably did as fine a uh, realism as anybody did. She was famous for both florals and for tabletop dinner, uh, what, what I would call lunch and dinner still lives. The, okay. the, the table before the meal, during the meal, and after the meal. Well, okay. All the mess and all the details and all the dirty silverware, <laughs> it's terrific. So pe pe people should look at those, those four or five uh, uh, people, if they want to see the bet, the very best of realism. And the good news is today we have some fabulous realist painters yeah. Uh, yeah. painting out there. You know the Angus uh, McEwens and the people yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. uh, so don't don't forget them also. So um, that's very fascinating because, um, uh, you know, I think realism really works when you get the story right. When, yeah. when you have the, uh, the story there and the drama, I think it, it works beautifully because it just grabs your attention and, you know, gets you. Uh, there's so many things in the painting that, you know, you can spend time over it. It's not like a quick thing that you see it and you move on. 
So I guess that's what uh, we're talking about, where you know you try to capture those details and um, the story in it. Oh wow! It does. It doesn't have to be yeah. something that's beautiful or Absolutely. these are just these are just a couple of pears wrapped in a plastic bag. But that's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. Well, I think it is. I mean, I I enjoyed painting this. I enjoyed setting up the still life. Uh, yeah. It was a challenge. Uh, but uh and it was difficult to paint i mean it took a lot a lot of hours to paint no, this I mean, simple simple painting yeah because i enjoy still lives myself but um i would say that i'm still a baby in it because i really haven't haven't started you know setting up my own great still lives and uh experimenting with that so in fact just you know if, if not for a viewer just for me i would love to know what are the basic things um one have to have when setting up a still life and what makes it work uh, well, the great thing about uh, doing a still life, particularly uh, today in, in, in the time of our uh, uh, very sophisticated little electronic cameras, uh, mm -hmm. it, it used to be very expensive, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because, and you had to, had to worry a lot about whether you were going to take that particular picture or the next one. But today you can just take hundreds of them. I take, I take lots and lots and lots of photographs. Uh, when I do, uh, I do my setup, for instance, I was trying, this was, this is what I taught in my last, uh, uh, class, mm -hmm. nice little still life with, with flowers and, uh, and, and Chinese porcelains, but these oh, are the wow. yeah. and these are just some of the photographs yeah. I took. And then put these in the uh, in my computer, and then narrowed it down to the six that I thought might work the best. Because just because you have a good photograph doesn't mean you're going to have a good painting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the photograph is better than the painting will ever be. So you have to find the one that is not only a good photograph but one that will translate into watercolor. Mm -hmm. And so, and then after I did all of that, then I made the choice of, mm -hmm. I thought this was the one because the way the flowers bring you into the painting, they, they, your eye travels around, it comes back to here and then it's led back up and led back around. And when you come down, you can't go off the sheet because the, the lace and the shadow yeah, turn your eye again. Then they catch the cup and bring you back into it. So you can't, once you're in it, you're in constant motion in the painting. And so, I, think, I think even without thinking, you have the necessary um, uh, components of composition out there, the focal point and the Fibonacci sequence, for instance. I mean, the flowers make a beautiful spiral out there. It, yes, it's exactly. So, it's so glaringly yeah. obvious there, yeah. And so, so what you do is you just put everything on the table. And then oh, okay. take without even working about it, just mm -hmm. put it up there. Mm -hmm. Take a, take that first photograph and say, okay, how can I improve this a little bit? And you move a couple of things, and it just gets better and better. And some, and then you take out something, and oh, well, that's simpler, that's easier, uh, that's even better. Oh, later you can put that back because put it in the background added something. So it's not a static process. It's, it's a process and usually takes me uh, a couple of hours 
to take these, but I'm, I'm just shooting. Bam, bam. Turn that cup a little bit to change how the light reflects on it. Bam. Turn that flower because all the flowers are seen in, uh, in, uh, from the side, and I had one turned where you looked into the end of it. Well, let's keep them more consistent because mm -hmm. we don't want somebody to worry why that one is different than the other. So yeah. think, think like your viewer would, yeah. uh, you know, ask questions of yourself. So is it, does that help? Oh, yes, absolutely. And it also shows me one more thing that um, if you do want to get a great still life, you can't just set it up in a minute. It, it has to take time, oh. care, and a lot of mulling over. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, you have to have, and you have to have the right props. You have to have the yeah. black background available. You have to have your, your lace. You have to have all your props available. And But the, the, the interesting thing I found out in setting up all my still lights is you really only need one light. Okay. And if most people bring three or four lights yeah. in, no, no, no. Okay. All of the still lifes through history have been lit by one source. What is that? The sun. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so still lifes work best when lit with one uh, light. I see. Okay. See how complex oh, wow. this That's painting so is? Yeah. But it only has one light. Ah. Now, over here, I needed uh to brighten it up so i just put a piece of white paper over here and balance some of the light so for dramatic lighting i think you need uh that one source to create the contrast i think exactly exactly, exactly. and uh here's another it's as complex as this is it only has one light source Beautiful. and so and and, and any big bulb 300 watt or whatever will work i have very sophisticated lights that i use that i can adjust the temperature and all of that sort of stuff but that's not how i started i started with very 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 simple equipment and then i just uh as i've advanced and needed more equipment and i've sold paintings and so i can afford them uh i have more complex uh studio than what i started amazing that's really interesting. So, um, uh, you know, I know you are part of a lot of uh, international societies uh, in the U.S. as well as uh, in other places, Fabriano, for instance. Yes. So what, uh, I'd love to know more about that journey and also um, a little bit more about the international forum where you were, you know, a big part of uh, something new coming up, as well as, you know, how we can get more and more uh, beginners to maybe, you know, see that, view that, and learn a lot from that? Well, I think that, uh, that it, it all goes back to me was that artists are very isolated. Mm -hmm. You can't paint, nobody can paint on that painting but you. I mean, if you do, if three or four people want to paint a painting, that's fine, but that's not the norm, obviously. So most of us are very isolated in our studios. And we work very hard to create something of which we think has value to it. Mm -hmm. But how do we validate that? Mm -hmm. that's, that's difficult because you can't ask your friends because your friends are going to say, oh, Sally, that's a wonderful painting. That's <laughs> the best thing you've ever done. But th they're protecting your ego. You know, 
your, your best friends as you get into painting and, and develop real art friends will be very frank with you. And they'll say, Lauren, that's pretty good, but boy, those colors just don't work. You know, you didn't think that one through, you know, yeah. <laughs> then, then you know, you've got a real friend. <laughs> so, so early, early in, in when I was just starting to, to paint, I didn't have any friends like that. So uh, then I discovered the watercolor societies. We have about 125 watercolor societies in the United States. Wow. Almost every major city has one. There are millions of watercolorists that participate all over the United States. And most of them have two competitions a year. They have mm -hmm. a members competition and then they have an open competition. And a lot of those are open to the whole world. Some are not. If the Florida Watercolor Society only has competitions for paintings for people that live in Florida. Right. But and some and, but states have the state of Texas, for instance, has uh, a big uh, one. And well, but give me two, let me give you two other examples. We have we have a, a pretty good uh, sized watercolor society here in Fort Worth, Texas. We have about 300 people in that group in Houston. They have a much larger one which has about 800 people in its watercolor society. And, but each of those watercolor societies take entries on their international once a year competition from anywhere in the world. Yeah. And uh, uh, people like uh, Joe Tianya in uh, China are now mm -hmm. members of the National Watercolor Society and the American Watercolor Society and the Houston Watercolor Society because they've entered their competitions. And uh, George Politis uh, is, is a member of many, as is Angus McEwen, because that gives you, and we, we, we join those societies and we participate in their competitions to validate that what we're doing has value. And that's the primary purpose that people participate. Now, the secondary reason they participate is that all of these watercolor societies are committed to teaching uh, beginning watercolorists and advanced watercolorists. Uh, mm -hmm. Every meeting of the, the, the Fort Worth, uh, it's called the Society of Watercolor Artists. And uh, every meeting we have some uh, artist come in and do a demonstration yes. of some kind of technique. And so, and, and almost every one of them do. I, I, I give demos at watercolor society meetings. I teach workshops. I do all of that. Uh, and I do that to give back to all those people that have helped me learn along the way, you know. Yeah. That's uh, really well put because, uh, I mean, for me, the first uh, big event I ever went to was Fabriano. And we, uh, not very long back, it was 2019. But uh, I, I saw the world differently after that, especially the world of art. Uh, but in general, for me, things changed because it opened up so many doors and you know um, gave me insights into the entire uh, art world. So, I mean, it's highly recommended that people don't just sit in their own spaces and paint. They, they should step out and take oh, part absolutely. in these events. Absolutely. absolutely. 
Yeah, I think that, uh, and those that, uh, that can afford it should go to workshops, should travel to workshops. I think that while COVID has been terrible for all of us, but the thing that it has shown us is that we can teach at distances and uh, uh, tools like Zoom and things like that have opened up whole new worlds for us. Yeah. We don't, uh, I, I know that there are a lot of people in uh, places in the world where they can't travel freely now can learn from masters through online teaching. And I think that's a fabulous thing. And I think even when we get back to one on, in-person one-on-one teaching, the, the other won't go away. It will be institutionalized as, uh, as a, a permanent part of art education. And I think we're going to see more and more one-on-one teaching uh, out there and mentoring yeah. out there, which wouldn't be possible if yeah. we didn't have these electronic means. Absolutely. I mean, there are people in the world who probably cannot afford to travel. So, you know, if they want to learn from someone across the world, I mean, it's possible right. now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's and I think that, you know, you mentioned, you, you mentioned Fabriano, and Fabriano is a very unique uh, mm -hmm. opportunity. And the one of the things, I'm like you, when I went to Fabriano, I was just amazed. I was just saying, this is the best thing that ever happened to watercolor. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Anna Masinisi and all of her wonderful people there who volunteer. I mean, nobody gets paid to create yeah. Fabriano. Mm -hmm. Fabriano is, is almost free for everybody. Uh, and so all you have to do is show up, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, Anybody can come. You don't, you don't even have to be a, 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 an exhibiting artist to, to come and, and, and learn. That's the beauty uh, of it. There. And, yes, and, 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 the, and the fact that it is so egalitarian. It means that you don't have to be a famous painter. You don't have to be a rich person. You don't have to uh, have status. You can just come and learn at your level because there's something there for everybody. I mean, you know, uh, right now the the exhibition is in uh, in Fabriano, and we have uh, I think it's 1,080 paintings yeah. displayed there, and I, they represent 82 countries around the world. I just think that is just the most fabulous thing. Fabulous. And 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 now we've gone online uh, with uh, the watercolor uh, museum platform. And mm -hmm. anybody can post on that and, and uh, post their exhibitions. They can post their workshops. And our goal is to make it the sort of encyclopedia or Wikipedia today of watercolor. So that if you have a question, you can go to the platform. And if you can't find an answer on the platform, you can at least find somebody to ask. Yeah. So the idea is that it, uh, it it just allows anybody to get better educated in watercolor with very, very little effort and no money. Yeah, I mean, it's it, even for, for an artist to be present on the forum is such a great opportunity. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's, it, it, you know, it's kind of, like you said, 80 countries are exhibiting in one place. And this is yeah. worldwide, you know, you can be anywhere right. in the world and you can be right. part of a big thing. So, That's right. 
Yep. So that is really amazing. And, you know, I'm hoping for a lot of new things that come up and it uh, gets better and better. Well, so we're, 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 we're working hard on it. Uh, the uh, last year was a difficult year because of COVID. And it took a lot of our time away from the platform mm -hmm. in order to do all this online. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm confident that uh, we're getting back to uh, re, uh, continuing to populate the, the platform. And the more people use the platform, the more valuable it would be. So I really encourage people and we'll, uh, we'll send out a link here to, uh, to you so you can post that so everybody can find uh, the platform. I will. I will post the link here. Yes. Good. Yes. Good. Uh, so I, I, I think that uh, this kind of thing is happening all over the world. Groups of people are getting together to teach each other, to share information. I have two or three groups here in the United States. Uh, uh, let me tell you about one group I, I, I have here in, uh, in Texas. It's in North Texas. We have about 15 artists and we get together every other month and we come to my house and we come and we have a, a nice glass of wine or, or a cheese and a mm -hmm. bubbly water and, uh, and greet each other and share news. And then everybody gets to bring uh, two paintings and mm -hmm. then we critique each other's art. Mm -hmm. and, and so you've got people like, uh, Rance Jones and uh, and uh, Michael Holter and uh, Stephen Zhang. I mean, really fabulous, fabulous painters. But we always have two or three beginning painters, so that they can learn from these masters. And it's been really fascinating to see these people. We we have a gentleman who is a, an engineer who just started painting. And so he comes and he's taken everything we, we've said very seriously. He paints a lot, he studies it. And now he's entering competitions and winning prizes. Wow. You know, and he started just as a beginner with us. And that's just pretty fabulous. That's great. You know, I mean, I think <laughs> we can go on and on about this. I mean, this is fascinating and I think the, the kind of depth of knowledge you are able to share with me, it's, um, it's not somewhere, you know, you can get it easily. But but I guess we have to think of the time, I guess. <laughs> so, yes. Um, yes. But, but before we go, I want to um, ask you one more thing. Sure. You know, and as, um, how do I phrase this? I think what I want to ask is, uh, how, how does a person who's looking for their own style um, who's in the process of discovering it and you know people tell the person like for instance I, people tell me you know they're able to now maybe recognize my painting without seeing the name but it's, I, I know I'm not there because I'm not happy with it you know it, to me it's not sure. me yet sure. so uh, sure. you know uh, how, how was your experience in that journey and when did you know that yeah this is this is you well actually there is a very simple simple answer <laughs> that takes a great deal of effort to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's practice, practice, practice. But there is a corollary to that. And that is the definition of, of, uh, of insanity. It, if you do the same thing mm -hmm. every time, 
the same way and expect it to be different, you'll always be disappointed. Mm -hmm. So you can't. And so what that means in the middle of all this practice, experiment. Yeah. Every time you do something, mm -hmm. do something different. I see. Use another color. Use another brush. Uh, use less water. Use more water. Uh, copy Matisse. Uh, you know, do something different every time you practice that, you know, uh, and, and, and pick a subject, a simple, simple subject and paint it over and over again. One of the best uh, things to paint to start with mm -hmm. is eggs. Because <laughs> eggs are you know, try to create a three-dimensional uh, object on a two-dimensional surface because eggs are very three-dimensional. Yes. But also, they because they're so white, they they react to whatever lights yeah. around them or whatever Absolutely. you set on. I've done, set on. I've done eggs twice actually, so I think maybe I should do you know do them with different objects together and um, you know I've just done eggs by themselves, but. Right. Sounds really yeah. interesting. And then do two eggs. And then they three eggs. And yeah. then do two eggs with a cracked egg. Yeah. I mean, it, it could get really complex. Then put your eggs in a basket. Or better yet, put your egg eggs in a white bowl. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on a white surface. And then put put the eggs in the bowl on a black surface and see how different that is. I've done all these things. Oh, that is and, awesome. And it, 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 it teaches you to... To, to, to look, and it also teaches you how to use watercolor in ways that you didn't realize you could use uh, yeah. watercolor. And then the most fabulous transition from there is white flowers, small white roses, magnolias. Mm -hmm. that I started painting flowers early on. I started with eggs. I went to white flowers because it, it taught me how to do things and make them round, how to give them sharp edges when they needed, how to give soft edges, how the how the the green leaves reflected on the underside of the white petals, all of those things. And you and so don't don't start with a great big group of twenty five roses. Start with one rose, you know, and start with a white rose, so you don't have to worry about which red is the right red? You know, you're just painting in gray. Yeah. So, uh, and, 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 and for me, and I'll, I'll end this, you talk about my journey. My journey was through all of these flowers because I used the flowers to practice all the techniques that I had learned and how to perfect them. And then, and that did well for me. I mean, the flowers got in exhibitions, they won prizes, that sort of thing that got published. And then I woke up one morning and said, Lauren, four million people paint roses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. One of the things I learned in marketing, if you're going to be successful, you, <laughs> yes. have, to, you have to differentiate yourself. Yes. You have to find something that is your subject something that nobody else is painting. So I looked around and uh, at what, what did I have around me? 
that nobody else had. And I was living in Mississippi at the time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my friends had this family silver and crystal. And of course, Mississippi is full of magnolias. So I combined the magnolias with the silver and crystal. And that's how I started painting uh, silver and crystal. And <laughs> my career took off because I had learned all the technical aspects through the flowers. And then I was able to apply them in a subject matter that not many people were doing. Now I'm at that point, what is my, where am I going to evolve next? Yeah. Uh, I, I want to paint trains and I've started to take photographs of trains and mm -hmm. paint some trains. I think trains are, you know, very masculine and they're very mm -hmm. intricate and they're very rusty and they're full of steam and all, all kinds of interesting things. Now, mm -hmm. whether I will do that or not, I don't know. I've, I've painted some tractors. I've painted a couple of trains. So we'll see where, where my, my path leads me. And the, the great thing about your journey is that it's never over. It's yeah. always new and exciting. Thank you for your time and thank you for your wonderful questions. <laughs> well, thank you, Lauren. I mean, and uh, good luck to you with your journey in the future. Thank you. Thank and you. thank you so much for your time. Thank yeah, you. Really appreciate it.